Lifa, the story goes, was the daughter of Canaan and came to the plain of Kildare. She loved the flatlands and the ditches and the unreachable horizon. She asked that it be named for her. The river took its name from the land. The land took its name from a woman. A woman in the doorway of a house. A river in the city of her birth. People sometimes say to you, you know, why, why do you write as a woman? I write as a woman because I am a woman. And because the life that comes to you comes to you from many sources. I mean, it can come to you from faith or hardship or sexuality. But the life I lived came very much because I was a woman. I, I was in a house. I had two small children. I had given birth to them. And it would have seemed to me as an artist very wrong to deny those things in any way. Really, poetry didn't acknowledge, or, or the poetic tradition, or, or whatever you want to call it, didn't acknowledge a visionary world in the world I lived in. I mean, it, it didn't acknowledge a visionary element to standing in the doorway of a house or, or getting into a car and collecting children or uh, being, being in a house and, and picking up something and putting it down again. And above all, there were days when I had small children and, and was in this house when it was a visionary as anybody who lives that life, which is very close to sources of love and sources of reflection. Any, anyone knows that there will be some times that seem visionary. Why, why then would the art form I practice not acknowledge the visionary element in the life I lived. It, it didn't. above my house, the river Liffey rises, is a source. It rises in rush and ling heather and black peat and bracken and strengthens to claim the city it narrated. Swans, steep falls, small towns, the smudged air and bridges of Dublin. Where we are now is just coming up the side of Hollis Street, which is in fact the working entrance of it. It has all kinds of memories really. One of them is just personal. I mean, my children were both born here, both my daughters, and so one in summer and one in the dead of winter uh, and on Christmas Eve. So I remember the hospital all decked out with holly and uh, tinsel and the labor ward. It was really Christmassy in every single way. And then further back, my, my grandmother died here in 1909, in October. She came up from the Midlands and had five children, the, the youngest of whom was my mother, who was then a baby of just a few months old. And she was 31 years of age. She entered here and she never came out, basically. I mean, she died 
on October the 10th, witnessed according to the death certificate, only by somebody who was in the room with her and one of the people, and I think she probably died of fever. And so in some ways, I mean, the, the story of all that ends with um, uh, me, in 1994, coming here as poet in residence in the centenary of the National Maternity Hospital. And I mean, partly because my own babies were born here, because my grandmother died here, I suppose I did have some instinctive sense of the way that two, there, there are two sides of things. As Brendan Behan said, the two days happen here. But I did always think that it, it honored and celebrated the community experience, which was, I mean, uh, Peter Boyle, the master, and, and Maeve Dwyer, the, the matron, they were very, had a sense of the centenary doing that, I mean, honoring a community. And so um, Rosie McGuire, who was the head medical social worker at the time, uh, I, be I began with her to set up a group here, which is a group of parents Whose, whose babies die here. It, it has got broader than that now, but that's how it began. So really this building has a great deal for me of, of, of some of the power of, of those various experiences. It would be lovely to say that the reason we asked her was that, that we knew that she'd had her babies in the hospital and that she had this connection because of the loss of her grandmother. Um, but in fact, no, we didn't know that. I mean, she was invited uh, to be the writer in residence because she was such an outstanding poet and a woman, of course. It was very important that, uh, you know, to us that, that um, we would have a woman as writer in residence. And um, it was her stature, I suppose, and her, her, her renown as a poet was the reason she was invited. And it was just a bonus that it turned out that she herself had had her babies here and had the connection with her grandmother. The fact, I suppose, that, that there is an actual place where she died has always been obscurely a rather precious piece of history to me. That uh, even, even when I was poet in residence here, I often used to look out those front windows and think that, you know, at least this was a place where she existed and I also existed, even if our lives had never touched. Um, at least we came through, you know, a very roundabout way to connect here. She played an incredibly important role. I mean, one thing that uh, emerged during the centenary year was that we held a service of remembrance for the, the babies who had died before or around the time of birth. And Ivan was heavily involved. And Bernie Spillan, who was the assistant matron at the time, who has since retired, there was a, a lovely moment where um, Bernie was sort of more or less suggesting, you know, could you? Uh, write a sort of a dash off a quick poem there for us. She did in fact uh, produce the poem in time for the service and and it was read at the service for the first time and it was very beautiful and very moving. And subsequently um, the poem uh, was uh, put on um, a granite block which is um, in Merrion Square and uh, at, the, at the end of the service we had the um, planting of snowdrop bulbs in the little garden in Marion Square and I know that to this day and since that um, mm. many couples who've had babies have gone to the square and planted their own little bulb in that garden to remember the babies that they've lost.
So we're at a corner of Marion Square, and just directly ahead of us is the little oak tree. Um, well, the, the oak tree was planted there after that service of remembrance, and all around are these beautiful silver-gray ghostly ferns, which, which this, this small garden has different flowers in it and different plants at every season and I think will always be either white or yellow. And, and all the snowdrops are under the ground there. I can see one of them just next to the stone there, just the bulbs. And each one of those is a child. You can see them there. And they will come up as a snowdrop garden in the spring. And as I said, just looking there now, I can see some snowdrops, even just the, the very tips. Um, of them, the, where they've been planted, and each is a bulb, and each is, is a baby, or, or is the commemoration of a child. Look at them, they're just wonderful. And if you just think, I mean, the, on that day that we had the service, that was an incredible day, because um, the man came from Galway, and his wife had, they had lost a baby 40 years earlier. He came on his own, his wife was dead, all the way from Galway and came over here and planted his little snowdrop because he, they had nothing to remember their baby by. I just thought it was the most beautiful thing. The poem came from that occasion uh, when, when it was agreed to plant the tree, the tree of life. And I had been with Rosaline running the group uh, for, for some months and had already begun to have a huge sense of the power of those narratives of the lost children and the enormous love and determination of people who had lost a baby to to find that image and, and keep that love. I wrote that poem, Tree of Life, which isn't published, but it's here on this stone. Tree of Life. A tree on a moonless night has no sap or color. It has no flower and no fruit. It waits for the sun to find them. I cannot find you in this dark hour, dear child. Wait for dawn to make us clear to one another. Let the sun inch above the rooftops. Let love be the light that shows again the blossom to the root. If I could see myself, I would see a woman in a doorway wearing the colours that go with red hair, although my hair is no longer red. My grandmother lived in, within those four miles from, from Drogheda to Termenfecken, and she died at 31 in Dublin. And she was brought back, and, and she died in October, and she must have brought, brought back in a very lonely journey to be buried in that graveyard, which is just there. I mean, it, it, it just not far from the Boyne Estuary in that really lovely countryside. I mean, somehow the whole adventure of her life happened there. So it, it was just somehow I wanted to touch that past by 
imagining her. Lava Cameo. I like this story. My grandfather was a sea captain. My grandmother always met him when his ship docked. She feared the women at the ports, except that it is not a story, more a rumor or a folk memory, something thrown out once in a random conversation, a hint merely. If I say wool and lace for her skirt and crepe for her blouse, in the neck of which is pinned a cameo carved out of black volcanic rock. And if I make her pace the cork docks, stopping to take down her parasol as a gust catches the silk tassels of it, then consider this. There is a way of making free with the past, a pastiche of what is real and what is not, which can only be justified if you think of it not as sculpture, but syntax, a structure extrinsic to meaning, which uncovers the inner secret of it. She will die at 31 in a fever ward. He will drown nine years later in the Bay of Biscay. They will never even be sepia. And so I put down the gangplank now between the ship and the ground. In the story, late afternoon has become evening. They kiss once, their hands touch briefly. Please look at me, I want to say to her, show me the obduracy of an art which can arrest a profile in the flux of hell. Inscribe catastrophe. Rather than being haunted, I'm very curious about her. I mean, I just grew to be curious over many years. I mean, I, I think, she, she died at 31, and it, it seemed to me so, uh, such, such a young age to die. I think I was very taken by the fact, which my mother told me when I was very young, that she wrote poetry. And none of it exists, but she did write it. And, you know, it, it was there. She did that. She was drawn to it. And, and so she had a life. Her name was Marianne Shields, and she was one of 13 children. I mean, she came, uh, as far as I know, although it isn't clear, I think she was born in Leitrim, but she came to live in Drogheda, and she married extremely young. She married at either 17 or 18. And uh, she had five children and five girls, and her husband went from being a sort of sailor to being a master mariner to getting his captain's ticket very young. Their lives came apart. I mean, they had five children. She died at 31. He drowned in the Bay of Biscay. I mean, fortune deserted them, really. Now, your mother, Frances Kelly, was, was a, an, an artist, a painter all her life, and these are the paintings in your house here, Ivan. Yes. So the one, the, the one at the end, which is yes. incredibly striking, is about... A young girl, maybe about 11 or 12, looking into a mirror, one of those three-faced mirrors where her reflection is looking back at her. 
Is this you? That's me. I was indeed 11. It was in London. And uh, I mean, this is this is the way that things change historically. I'm so glad to have that. And uh, she's really a, a great, I mean, hero of mine. Has been since I was a child. I mean, she, I think she was very and is a very humane. I mean, I think that humane and romantic in her view of many things and, and as far from cynicism as a person could be. And I, I think that was very influential. She was a thoroughly practical person. She could make a wonderful parcel and she could make a wonderful meal and uh, loved painting and was a very good conversationalist. And so, I mean, it's a very, it's, it's been very important to me to have that, if you like, model in my life. I think because my grandmother's mother died when she was very young, I think it's um, a relationship that my mother really does treasure with her mother, and so she's passed it on to us, though, and has really made the effort um, to be close with my sister and myself. I think I was a sort of second-generation orphan and, and saw its effects. I saw that it is this very substantial erasure of somebody a, a sort of a great deal of history goes of somebody as orphaned. A great deal of the, I mean, even though my family moved round when I was young, I remember places, I remember occasions, I remember conversations, and if I'm talking to my sisters or my brother, we, we have some common memories, we, we can refer to them. I think a lot of that goes if you're an orphan. I, I think you lose a lot of the landscape of memory. Gone. As it is such an important thing to my mother, though, as she loves her own mother so much, to know where she did come from and what her parents were like, and I think there is great fascination there. But it isn't so much that kind of there were stories passed on, but you know, occasionally, for example, when we were passing Hollow Street, I think only about three weeks ago, she pointed out and said, "That's where your great grandmother died." You know, in the fever hospital there, and maybe small things like that, or things like her hair was red. I would want my daughters to, to hear those stories. I mean, what, how they take them in, how they, they, how, what status they give them, what importance they give them. It will be very much to do with their own lives and the past they seek out. But I want them to have those things. I look for those stories in, in, in some ways when I meet people. And I, and I think that, you know, I think that I think that if you look for them, you will find those stories. I praise the gifts of the river, its shiftless and glittering retelling of a city, its clarity as it flows in the company of runt flowers and herons around a bend at Island Bridge and under 13 bridges to the sea. It's patience at twilight, swans nesting by it, neon wincing into it. Maker of places, remembrances, narrate such fragments for me. One body, one spirit, one place, one name. The city where I was born, the river that runs through it, the nation which eludes me fractions of a life it has taken me a lifetime to claim. I came here in a cold winter. I had no children, no country, 
I did not know the name for my own life. My country took hold of me. My children were born. I walked out in a summer dusk to call them in. One name, then the other one. The beautiful vowels sounding out, home. Make of a nation what you will. Make of the past what you can. There is now a woman in a doorway. It has taken me all my strength to do this, becoming a figure in a poem, usurping a name and a theme. A river is not a woman, although the names it finds, the history it makes and suffers, the Viking blades beside it, the muskets of the redcoats, the flames of the forecourts blazing into it are a sign. Any more than a woman is a river, Although the course it takes, through swans courting and distraught willows, its patience, which is also its powerlessness, from calorie to island bridge and from source to mouth, is another one. And in my late forties, past believing love will heal what language fails to know and needs to say, what the body means, I take this sign and I make this mark a woman in the doorway of her house, a river in the city of her birth, the truth of a suffered life, the mouth of it. And one of the things that just most stuck with me, which I really, Rosie, must go back to and do. I mean, one small practical thing that just stuck with me, people suggesting, you know, that there should be a camera in the hospital. Yeah, yeah. Really good, <coughs> and it should be just given immediately. I suppose I, I just have the privilege of being there, and I don't have any remedial role. I mean, but being there, I suppose I can see the story. I suppose I went towards doing this when I was port and residence at Hollis Street. In, in some colonial writerly way, thinking that writing was the best way to express that experience. And I have just hugely changed my mind on that. I, I just see the way people speak. I just see this eloquent, powerful, overwhelming story. And, and I'm sure uh, that story has just been there almost in the same language, the same episodes, the same words, the same tableau from the very beginning of time. Ever since people first lost children, I mean, the same passion of love, the same passion of outrage, the same uh, attempt to understand that, that, that the same longing to, to allow that child the, the survival in love that it hasn't had in life. I mean, all of those things are, are recurrent in that group. They must have been recurrent from the very beginning of time. The following Saturday, Saturday morning, they'd woke me up to do a monitor on the twins' heartbeats. And the twins were fine, you know, doing great. You know, she, I didn't know I was having a boy and a girl at the time. So um, they, they, they'd done the twins' heartbeats at 7 a.m. that morning, and four hours later, they were trying to find the other heartbeat, and they couldn't find it. That's when I'd realised one of my babies were dead. At first, when I heard she died, you know, this is before she was born, I'd said I didn't want the twins, I didn't want the one that was living. So, but when she was actually born, they had asked me, did I want to hold her? And I said no. Just because of what I was going through, I was feeling depressed when I didn't. But like two minutes later, I had her in my arms and I was holding her. And I had her with me for the five days I was in the hospital. She was in my ward and, 
you know, it was like I kept her overnight some nights, but the other night he had to keep her in the cool room just to preserve her, you know, before she was buried. She like she brought joy and very very much sadness to the home, you know. All my sisters and brothers were like just totally devastated. So the hospital always had this group. Ivan then attended um, uh, one of the, the the group meetings and invited the couples um, to to um, you know continue meeting with her and with Rosaline. And um, I gather I know that the, the the meetings are still going on. Our baby was born on the 16th of August. Um, she had died the day before but um, I was three weeks overdue at the time and it all happened on the 4th of August. We went in, because I was 10 days overdue, we went in for a scan and they found that the baby had hydrocephalus and they couldn't guarantee us whether the baby would live or die and they sent me home again and I had to come in a few different times uh, for scans and to see how things were going. So eventually they brought me in and induced me. Um, on Monday and she, um, she died before I went into labour on the Tuesday morning and she was born early Wednesday morning so you know, it was a long time but we had you know over the 10 or 11 days that we had before she was born we had sort of been preparing ourselves for the worst and hoping for the best at the same time so um, it was a really difficult time. At least you can talk to other people that know what you've gone through if somebody hasn't been through it you, you couldn't describe it to them no matter how hard you tried. In in a group like this, everybody's gone through it. And as I say, you, they know what you're talking about and they've been through somewhat similar, maybe not the exact same similar, and you can talk. You think you're the only person in the world that's happened to. You know, you do until you understand and hear these people. And then even now that I'm a bit more known at the group and there's only newcomers coming now, and I'm like, well, how do you feel? I can actually ask them questions now where I, I wouldn't have at the first time. I was just, there was no way I would. I wouldn't have the nerve to. And now I do sit and I'll ask them questions and we'll talk and they'll say, yeah, like that. That's how I felt. Ivan was very keen to try put some of those thoughts and ideas into poetry so that, you know, they'd be everlasting and you'd have them all the time. So even though we didn't have a poem ourselves on the day, I think the poems that were read out were very special to the people. That, that actually uh, that actually said them and uh, certainly some of the experiences and things that came out in the poetry um, were you know similar for everybody I think similar experiences. Rosalind is the counsellor you know when I go on a session she's my counsellor but with Yvonne, Yvonne is just so relaxed she's so pleasant, pleasant she's a beautiful manner and then she's sitting there and she's like she'll just gently ask you a question and if you can't answer it you know, if you feel too upset, she just sits back and the whole place goes quiet and there's no, there's nothing wrong with being quiet, you know, and you know that, you know, you know no one's rushing you to tell you to say it, say it now, say it now, you don't have to. She's just, and she'll ask you the questions that really you want to be able to answer, you know what I mean? You want to be able to tell everyone this and you're waiting for someone to ask and she asks you the questions that really are the most important. No, I haven't written. Uh, written any poems out of it. I wouldn't write any poems out of it. I've always had a very intense sense of the privacy, really, of people within that group, uh, the privacy of the experiences and the privacy of grief. I suppose I'm very glad if people find out about it and find that it is a resource and, and know it's there. But outside of that, it, when you ask what do other poets uh, think of it, I can't remember uh, a single poet I've ever spoken to about it. I wouldn't like to think that we hide it, because I don't think we do. I think we're much more careful about 
the, the, the whole area of loss now than we would have been years ago. And the reason being that there was less known about it years ago. I mean, I can remember as, as a young midwife actually saying to a woman who lost a baby, you know, don't worry because, you know, you have an angel in heaven and, uh, you know, you're very young and you will have another baby soon. Now, I mean, if somebody said that in 1996, you would, you know, think about their sanity. But in 1966 or 1976, that would have been considered the correct thing to do. And I think um, by the time Ivan arrived here, um, we, we, the hospitals, maternity hospitals generally had changed their approach to um, loss in pregnancy. And I think the three Dublin maternity hospitals, all of us, deal with this extremely well now. <coughs> birds come in from the coast. The city wisdom is they bring rain. I watch them from my doorway. I see them as arguments of origin, leaving a harsh force on the horizon only to find it slanting and falling elsewhere. Which water, the one they leave or the one they pronounce, remembers the other? I'm sure the body of an aging woman is a memory. And to find a language for it is as hard as weeping and requiring these birds to cry out as if they could recognize their element remembered and diminished in a single tear. been powerless they've they've been presences in each other's lives they've been ghosts in each other's hearts I don't think they've been powerless but they've been unprivileged they've they've had their power at the very margins of, of a society at the very margins of history many many of the great sort of constructs have been made assuming the absence of women history was made assuming the absence of women economic structures at the start of this century and much against uh, what happened later assumed the absence of women. Uh, a great deal of, of the original concepts of suffrage and pro property assumed the absence of women. The assumption that women w would be absent from the councils of humanity is where the injustice lies. An aging woman finds no shelter in language. She finds instead single words she once loved, such as summer and yellow and sexual and ready, have suddenly become dwellings for someone else. Rooms and a roof under which someone else is welcome, not her. look at the men uh, who, who simply didn't want to live in that world. 
the, the men who refused to, to live in a world where women were completely uh, unprivileged. And I think you have to turn that around and ask some extraordinarily harsh questions on the other side of that issue. Even in Ireland here, there are men who are liberal and distinguished and are prominent who have never, never, never publicly gone on record uh, to complain about the fact that in 1970 a woman couldn't sit on a jury without it being, a, a, without there being a property qualification, that she couldn't sign a purchase agreement. The men who attack my poetry, for instance, for being middle class, have never gone on the record once for protesting a human injustice. And perhaps somebody like myself would look with just that bit more respect at their criticisms of an expressive woman's world if they had been part of the chorus which really did protest against human injustice as it was done to women. This is dawn. Believe me, this is your season, little daughter. The moment daisies open. The hour mercurial rainwater makes a mirror for sparrows. It's time we drowned our sorrows. I tiptoe in, I lift you up wriggling in your rosy, zipped sleeper. Yes, this is the hour for the early bird and me, when finder is keeper. I crook the bottle, how you suckle. This is the best I can be, housewife to this nursery where you hold on, dear life. A silt of milk, the last suck and now your eyes are open, birth-colored and offended. Earth wakes, you go back to sleep. The feed is ended. Worms turn, stars go in, even the moon is losing faith. Poplars stilt for dawn, and we begin the long fall from grace. I tuck you in. I think it is something you, you often hear. You often hear that, that a poet like myself is writing out of safe middle-class themes and that uh, somehow the, the birth of children, the existence of children, that, that becomes a, a middle-class narrow theme, though, of course, war poetry is not. I think it's one of the things that highlights, though, um, her poetry, that she does write about things that people can relate to. And I think it's one of maybe her best-known poems as well. When people mention it, though, when people say it's about you or your sister, and no, it's, I like that. Tell me, Annalithi, spirit of water, spirit of place, how is it on this rainy autumn night as the Irish sea takes the names you made, the names you bestowed, and gives you back only wordlessness? 
Autumn rain is scattering and dripping from carports and clipped hedges. The gutters are full. When I came here, I had neither children nor country. The trees were arms. The hills were dreams. I was free to imagine a spirit in the blues and greens, the hills and fogs of a small city. My children were born. My country took hold of me. A vision in a brick house. Is it only love that makes a place? small practical way I mean it was certainly the hospital's intention um, and, and my hope that it would be a garden of remembrance that people would see the physical I mean if, if you are in a group uh, with people in a community of people whose babies have died I mean the overwhelming impression is of, of the courage of love and the intensity and determination not to allow something to be erased not to allow a life that didn't find a physical expression to lose all the spiritual expression. And so in some way, all those hopes and determinations are, are here, at least in some s modest symbols like the tree, which is the tree of life. And of course, my one hope is that somebody will come here on a spring morning, even if it is their distress, and see this and be comforted in some small way. At the time, I, my first reaction was to just get home, get back, looking after my family. And then it was as time went by that I felt it affected me, uh, years afterwards. And um, then I found that um, I wanted something concrete. And even the simple fact of uh, coming in to Hollis Street to Roselane and getting a card with the baby's name on it, which I hadn't given a name to the baby up to then. So Roselane started immediately start to fill out a certificate and ask me for a name, so I just gave her a name straight off the top of my head. And that little card meant a lot to me. And the ceremony then, um, the, the, the planting the oak tree in uh, Marion Square and the little uh, snowdrops around it, I have visited it a few times and I certainly, I went last year when the snowdrops were blooming and I hope to go again this year, I'll make a point of going again this spring. I feel it change. My children are growing up, getting older. My country holds on to its own pain. I turn off the harsh yellow porch light and stand in the hall. Where is home now? Follow the rain out to the Dublin hills. Let it become the river. Let the spirit of place be a lost soul again. Our grandmothers' lives were far, far more different from ours than, uh, uh, you know, 
the grandfather's lives were, were different from contemporary husbands or brothers or friends. And I, I think in that extraordinary upheaval, you can see a number of movements. You, you can see a movement from silence to expression. Of course, you can see a movement from, from various types of, of legislative uh, oppression to legislative equality. But, but I think some of the difficulties have remained exactly the same. If you go a little bit beyond that, and, and you see the issues raised by that huge sort of pilgrimage, really, from, from my grandmother's world to, to my own, or, or from anybody's, uh, from the world of those women to the world of these women, uh, I think you would similarly see a resistance in a society to believing that um, the issues raised there are issues for a whole society. I mean, I think it's, it's become one of the odd things that women are, are sort of now accused of seeking privilege and they're accused of, you know, being intolerant and they're accused of, of seeking dominance. I think a dialogue has to get a, a bit further so that people see no society wants to be without the voice and vision of women. I mean, if, if a person were to turn to me even in the most extreme senses of conservatism or even establishmentarianism or, or misogyny and say to me, yes, we do want society as it once was without the voice and vision of women. They don't want that for their sons and daughters. They don't want to hand on a narrower world. I mean, they want a world for their daughters that is broader, more expressive, more contributory. They want their sons to be able to accept that world and contribute again. There isn't any gain in a narrow world. In the end, it will not matter that I was a woman. I am sure of it. The body is a source, nothing more. There is a time for it. There is a certainty about the way it seeks its own dissolution. Consider rivers. They're always en route to their own nothingness. From the first moment, they are going home. And so, when language cannot do it for us, cannot make us know love will not diminish us, there are these phrases of the ocean to console us particular and unafraid of their completion. In the end, everything that burdened and distinguished me will be lost in this. I was a voice. <laughs>